I am a sucker uh, for a very good underdog story. Um, when it comes to uh, watching sports, when it comes to uh, just just in being engaged in that world, uh, I am a big sucker for watching the underdog and wanting to see the upset, right? Um, last night, uh, I was watching between but five different football games and three different baseball games, um, a lot of underdogs, right, were, were at battle. Um, and most of them came out on top, except the ones that were going against my teams, particularly the Astros. 18 innings, a long time. Some people would say a boring game. I would say absolutely fantastic. 18 innings, one nothing. Loved it, every second of it. Um, but I got to watch people like the Dodgers lose. <laughs> Good. Uh, got to watch the Yankees lose in the last inning. Do you like the Yankees? Don't care. Uh, got to watch the Braves lose. Praise the Lord. They're done. They're gone. Sorry, Kelby. Um, anyway, so like I, I got to watch like all of these other teams lose, but my team, I was very excited because I am a sucker for underdogs when it comes to other teams, right? Particularly that... Red team, a couple of states over, lost to a really ugly orange, right? That was really nice, too. So, so yesterday was the day of under, underdogs, and I was like, this is great, this is awesome. I had a blast watching it. But it made me think about the number one biggest, the capital T, biggest, capital B, upset of all time in American sports. And it's from 1980, way before most of us were born, right? Um, but 1980... U.S. hockey, this is that weird sport that they play up north with like ice and sticks and skates and uh, right? But 1980, semifinals for the Olympics, U.S. hockey is playing the Russians. It's the biggest upset in, in, in history and it's, a lot of us, I think, might miss some of the context of that. Well, what was going on at that time, it was kind of the peak of the Cold War. There was a lot of tension that was going on just in geopolitics, in the world, and what happens? Sure enough, it comes down to the semifinals for the, in the medal round that the U.S. is going to play Russia. Now, Russia at the time, for 20 years, had been dominant. Had barely lost a game for 20 years. That just was a sign their hockey, their, their, their hockey prowess, their hockey, right, like their, their reputation as a hockey team just was a sign or just a small sliver of what they were on the world. They had their thumb on basically most of the geopolitical world. They were dictating what would happen in other countries across the world. Because the communist regime was, was very, very strong. In fact, what, what it was is that the, uh, the players on this hockey team were actually enlisted soldiers in the Red Army, and their job as part of the Army was to go and kick everybody's you-know-what in the world at hockey. Because Russians are going to show and flex on the world in every possible way. Politics, war, even athletics. That's what the U.S. faced. We look at the U.S.'s roster. U.S. were a bunch of amateurs, just fresh out of college, most of them from Minneapolis, Minnesota, the Minneapolis, Minnesota area and the Boston area. And outside of that, they were pretty much just a bunch of young 20-something-year-olds that had never seen the world. 
going up against a trained, equipped, professional team. Game starts, puck drops, they play. Ten minutes left in the game, the U.S. makes a fantastic goal. They're gonna, they, they're, they are up by one. People are absolutely shocked because this team had been beaten by something like ten goals not a month earlier. The players that actually that played for the U.S. in this game talked about it, how that ten minutes was the longest ten minutes of their life. They would play as hard as they possibly could. That would feel like it was two and three and four minutes at a time to look up to see the clock, and the clock had ticked 20 seconds off. Playing as hard as they could, 20 more seconds. Playing as hard as they could, 10 seconds. Just waiting and hoping that they could hold on just to the very end to possibly beat this communist army of a team. Gets down under a minute and now the, the, the stadium starts to build up. It's in Lake Placid, New York. The stadium starts to build up. The excitement starts, the buzz starts to kind of go through. And all of a sudden, we get under 10 seconds and Al Michaels starts to count down. 10 seconds left. 5 seconds. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. The clock strikes zero. An absolute madhouse on the ice. Players crying, players cheering, because the lowly college kid, po-dunk group of U.S. hockey players just beat the mighty Russians. This is a semifinal game. It, it, there was no medal on the line. The U.S. actually had to go off and play another game that they were down in, and then they ended up having to win that game to get the gold medal. But sure enough, they had their moment in the sun where they had the medal put on their necks because they won. They succeeded. But the biggest moment was the semifinal game when they were able to slay the evil Russians. Biggest upset in, human, in, biggest upset in sports history, probably worldwide, but definitely in American sports. And it just was, it was bigger than just the game. Now, why do I bring that up? Because when we understand the context, we might be able to look at a box score and see that the score was four to three, and we could see who scored, and that Mike Ruzioni at 10 minutes left scored a goal, right? Like, we could see these things just on a box score and be like, oh, that's cool. Wow, that was pretty big. Wow, that was nice. But if you understand the context of the story, now all of a sudden it takes on a whole nother. Like, it takes on a whole nother seriousness, a whole nother influence, a whole nother impact. In our first reading today, we might not realize it, but this is one heck of an upset that we come across. And usually, because it's the Old Testament and it's coming from Exodus, if you're like me, usually when you hear a name that you don't know, you just kind of tune it out. And, oh yeah, that, that thing, right? But let's break it down, let's get the context, let's understand what's actually going on. And I think, I personally think, that it could be one of the most powerful images for us of how it is for us to, to pray and to serve our God. So we hear, in the God, we hear in our first reading today, right, that there's this country, Amalek. The, 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 this country is a nomadic country. They, 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 have a, they have this own little corner of the desert that's right outside of Israel. Or that's right outside of Egypt, right? The Israelites, we all know that they were enslaved in Egypt, right? 
got Moses and the plagues and the whole nine, right? He, he does all the things. They go through the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts. They go through the Red Sea out into freedom. The Red Sea closes. The Egyptians sink, right? Hallelujah. Amen. Great. They are free. Now they spend 40 years walking through the desert. 40 years aimlessly kind of making their way through the desert. And when you aimlessly walk like that, what happens is, is that sometimes you end up in other people's land. So, so Amalek, this nation, it, they, they end up kind of cutting through the backyard, if you will, of Amalek. And the Amalekites aren't very happy that there's this nation that's in our backyard. So the way that they would handle it is that as the Israelites would travel and people might fall behind, whether it be elderly or maybe it's people with kids or maybe it'd be families, or maybe it'd just be like the lazy aunt that's just like slept in one day, right? Like all of those people that were just kind of being left behind at different times during this caravan, the Amalekites would actually go, they would raid them, and they would leave them for dead. Desert pirates, basically. Go in, take what they could from them, leave them for dead, or maybe outright kill them themselves. The Israelites are freed slaves walking through a desert, and they're being picked off behind them. People that lag behind. Until one day they are cornered, and that's what we get to in our, gospel, in our first reading today. That this group of former slaves find themselves cornered by this professional, trained, and equipped army. And God looks at them and says, no, it's time to fight. Now, the key image, key part of this, is that the Israelites, they were slaves that were freed and they left in a hurry. So when they left, I'd be willing to bet that they did not take arms, that they did not take weapons, that they did not take armor, that they did not take anything that necessarily could be seen as a threat to another people. But instead, they took like food and their livelihood and got out. So God looks at Joshua, or Moses speaks to, speaks to God and speaks to Joshua, and Joshua has to now go to the people of Israel, go to the Israelites, and he says, find suitable men. Build an army who can go and fight the Amalekites. Go and find an army of freed slaves that are unarmed to go and fight this professional, trained, and equipped army who have been terrorizing your people. Just imagine what it would be like to be asked to be part of that group. You're woefully under, uh, understaffed. You're woefully undertrained. And you're woefully unarmed. And this is who, and we're going up against a professional army. It's a bigger gap than college kids playing Russians in a hockey match. But God, what he has is, he says, Joshua, I want you to lead the troops. You are down in the trenches leading the troops into battle. But Moses, I'm going to put you up on a mountain. 
And I want you to intercede on behalf of the battle. On behalf of your people. I want you to pray on behalf of your people. And Moses, as long as your hands are up in prayer and in, in, in intercession for them, they will win. But if you get tired, if he gets lazy, if he thinks, ah, oh, we've got it, and his hands start to drop, they start to lose. The other thing we need to know about the Old Testament when it comes to battles, when it comes to fights, when it comes to these nations warring against each other, pretty much, it, pretty much always, it's never about the, 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 any kind of political gain or about some kind of land dispute. Whenever we're talking about Old Testament fights, Old Testament war, it's almost always the God of one group against the gods of the other. So in this case, what, it really, what this battle is all about is really the gods of the Amalekites against the God of, of Israel, Yahweh, our God. And it's a testament and an expression of how the God of one defeats the gods of the other. Because this is a spiritual battle we're talking about. It's a spiritual battle that, we, that, we, that takes place, and that's how I think it applies even to us today. Because the reality is, is that right now, for every one of our souls, for every one of our attention, for every one of our hearts, that there is a battle that is taking place. The Amalekites are a perfect example of the culture of death, of the culture of the world, of the kingdom of Satan. And you can bet your butt that right now, that kingdom is still waging war. It's still coming after each one of us. It may not be with swords and shields, but it comes after us with indifference. It comes after us with, with being overwhelmed. It comes after us through fear. comes after us through judgment of ourselves or others. comes after us through despair. comes after us through loneliness. comes after us through addiction. That kingdom is still waging war. But just like the way that God set up His army, even in this battle of the first reading, right? Just like that, God sets up a battle for us. He, set, he establishes it for us, a way for us to fight, a way for us to enter into the battle and to come out successful. Because there's two elements that are taking place in this fight with the Israelites and the Amalekites. There's the active role, Joshua, right, in the trenches, actually fighting, actually going, and, 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 and being physically engaged in the fight. There's also Moses, who finds himself just praying and interceding, appealing to God for His grace. See, it's a perfect example of the church because we as, as priests and we as the laity, we are sent out into the world to be in the trenches, to be on the front lines, to be in the battle. While God has chosen some to live a life in cloister, some to live a life in the convent or in a monastery, who pray on behalf of the church. 
And there's this contemplative, this, this prayer, and this work that takes place together in harmony. Like, I, I've been sitting with this a lot, like, even thinking about here at St. At St. Thomas, right? Like, this, this building is a beehive most of the time during the day. People coming in and out, things going on, a lot of masses being celebrated, people coming in and out during Sundays or during the, during the week for Nova, like all the things that we do, people constantly are around. But at the same time, just next door in the chapel, it's quiet, it's peaceful, it's contemplative. It's allowing God to speak so that the activity here can come to fruition. In the same way, we are built to be both active and contemplative. We are built to be both in the trenches and absolutely active in the world. Because if we are only contemplative, then we never do anything. Our faith never is exercised. Our faith is never spoken about. Our faith is never shared. If it's just contemplative, it becomes this lie of a me and Jesus and that's it and that's all that's important. That might be your temptation, and, I, and, and honestly, it's been, been the grace of this relationship, this vertical relationship, is meant to be shared, is meant to be spoken about, is meant to be engaged. But I think a lot of times what ends up happening, if, if you're like me, you end up being so focused on the active, so focused on the stuff, so focused on the things I have to do and the calendar and the classes and the practices and everything else that I have to do that God gets the leftovers if He gets anything at all. We don't engage in the contemplative as much. We don't engage in, in, in allowing God to speak to me. Some of you noticed a couple of weeks ago I was on a five-day silent retreat um, and I survived. Um, but I was on a five-day silent retreat. Uh, it was an absolute blessing. But I remember at, towards the end of the retreat, while the, it, there was a lot of good time of prayer and things like that, there was, there was this one time, like, I walked, into, I walked into spiritual direction with my director, and I was just like, look, I'm kind of pissed off. I ain't going to lie. I was like, I feel like I've been sitting, doing the things, praying like I'm supposed to, showing up like I'm supposed to, and God just ain't moving. I was like, it took me three and a half days just to calm down and turn my mind off from everything that I have to do to active. Just to, just to let God speak. Like, it, it, like, I was angry. I was anger journaling, right? Like, my, my handwriting was different. It was weird, right? I was just like, I, I just can't shut off. I said, but at one point during my, during my prayer time, like, at one point when I went to get up, I was absolutely livid couldn't say anything, but I was like, I could feel it. Like, I'm anxious and, you know. And I was about to get up, and I remember just very, very quietly in prayer, I heard, the, like, I felt the Lord tell me. It's just like, it's just like plain as day. Just very simple. Keep showing up. Like sometimes we can be so focused on the active, so focused on the things that we have to do, so focused on our schedule, our practice, like all these things, all our commitments, all our responsibilities, that we can miss the importance. We can miss why is it that we even show up to pray? Why is it that I should allow God to be a part of it? But sometimes we just need to show up. Like that act of faith is enough. 
I once heard it said the only, not praying is, is much less a time problem than it is a faith problem. First excuse, if I would say, go, go, start going to the chapel 30 minutes a day, I got a feeling that everybody in here at some point would probably say, Father, I don't have the time. That might be legitimate. But, oftentimes prayer is a lot more of a faith problem than a time problem. Let me explain. I know that I'm going to commit three hours on Tuesday to watch the Astros play the first game of the ALCS. Why? Because I know that I'm probably going to get an entertaining time. It's going to be a fun thing to do. I have faith in that, that team to fulfill a desire in my heart. So I'm willing to commit the time, even though I'm busy. Right? Well, in my prayer, oftentimes I'm, it's 30 minutes. And I might not have the faith that God will actually show up and do anything in that time. So I'm not willing to invest it. See, today as we come to this Mass, we are coming to allow the Lord to speak to us both actively and contemplatively. And by virtue of being here, you are saying, Lord, I I trust that you can do something in my life. I trust, I have faith in you that you can work in my life in some way. And that's why I'm here. And I'm willing to invest the time into the relationship. Today, when we come to this Mass, we are coming to say, Lord, I need you to speak to me, and then I need you to be active as I go from this church. Lord, I want to feed my relationship with you. That's that's why we're here. He's going to feed us literally, explicitly. But I don't want to be caught with sterile activity being all that I'm focused on. May today, as we come into this church, as we come to, 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 to prepare ourselves for the battle that lies outside, the battle that lies within our heart, for purity and for sanctity, let us come with a faith that's ready to receive. I think that's why in our Gospel today, the last line is this little warning shot from Jesus. That when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith? What's your faith like? Is it strong? Or is it sterile activity? And today we come to be fed so we can bear the fruit that the Lord wants to bear. That we can enter into the battle and that with His grace we can win.